We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. As, our, as our, our dear brother and pastor mentioned, I'll be in Nehemiah chapter 12 uh, tonight. Nehemiah 12. Now these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Maluk, Hattush, Shekaniah, Reham, Merimuth, Edo, Genethoi, Abijah, Mejam, Medaya, Bilga, Shemaiah, Jariab, Jediah, Salu, Amak, Hakiah, and Jediah. These were the heads of the priests and their brethren in the days of Jeshua. Moreover, the Levites were Jeshua, Benui, Kedmiel, Shabiah, Judah, and Mataniah, who led the thanksgiving psalms, he and his brethren. Also, Bakukiah and Uni, their brethren, stood across from them in their duties. Jeshua begot Joachim, Joachim begot Elishab, Elishab begot Joiada, Joiada begot Jonathan, and Jonathan begot Judah. Now, in the days of Joachim, the priests, the heads of the fathers, houses were of Sariah, Moriah of Jeremiah, Haniah of Ezra, Melushim of Amariah, Jeroim of Maluko, Jonathan of Saniah, uh, Joseph of Harim, Adna of Moroth, and Hakiah of Edo, Zechariah of Ginnathan, Meshalom of Abijah, Zikri, the son of uh, Medijim, of uh, Mediah, uh, Biltai, of Buga, Samua, of Shemaiah, uh, Jonathan, of Jeriab, Mataniah, of Jediah, Uzi, of Salai, Kalai, of Amuk, Eber, of Hilkiah, Hashabiah, of Jediah, Nathaniel. During the reign of Darius the Persian, a record was also kept of the Levites and priests who had been heads of their fathers' houses in the days of Elishab, Joida, Johanan, and Jedua, the sons of Levi, the heads of the fathers' houses, until the days of Johanan, the son of Elishab, were written in the books of the Chronicles. And the heads of the Levites were Hashiba, uh, Sharada, and Jeshua, the son of Kedmiel, with their brothers across from them to praise and give thank, group alternating with group according to the commandment of David, the man of God, Mataniah, Bakukai, Rodiah, Meshulam, Talman, Akub, were gatekeepers keeping the watch at the storerooms of the gates. These lived in the days of Joachim, the son of Jeshua, the son of Josadak, in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest, the scribe. Now, 
At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgiving and singing, with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the countryside around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Nephites, from the house of Gilgal, from the fields of Geba and Asmereth, for the singers had built themselves villages all around Jerusalem. Then the priests and the Levites purified themselves and purified the people, the gates, and the wall. I brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall and appointed two large thanksgiving choirs. One went to the right hand on the wall toward the refuse gate. After them went Hashiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Ezriah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, and some of the priests, sons with trumpets, Zechariah with the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zechur, the son of Asaph, and his brethren, Shemaiah, Ezrael, Maliah, Goliath, May, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hananiah. And, I'm sorry, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra, the scribe, went before. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, went before them by the fountain gate in front of them. They went up the stairs of the city of David on the stairway of the wall beyond the house of David, as far as the water gate eastward. The other Thanksgiving choir went the opposite way, and I was behind them with half the people on the wall going past the tower of the ovens as far as the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, above the old gate, above the fish gate, the tower of Hanal, the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate, and they stopped by the gate of the prison. So the two thanksgiving choirs stood in the house of God. Likewise, I and half the rulers with me, and the priests, Eliakim, Messiah, Benjamin, Micaiah, Illinois, Zechariah and Hananiah with trumpet, also Messiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Johanan, Monkajah, Elam, and Ezer. The singers sang loudly with Jezriah, the director. Also, the day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy, and women and the children also rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. And at the same time, some were appointed over the rooms of the storehouse for the offerings, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather them, in, them from the fields of the city, the portions specified by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who ministered. Both the singers and the gatekeepers kept the charge of their God and the charge of the purification according to the command of David and Solomon his son. For in the days of David and Asaph of old, there were chiefs of the singers and songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. In the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, all Israel gave the portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, a portion for each day. They also consecrated holy things for the Levites, and the Levites consecrated them for the children of Aaron.
Mrs. Postiff is going to take the youngsters upstairs if they would like to go with her. The nice thing about this day and age is we have a very, very uh, helpful tool called cloud-based storage. <laughs> so that allowed me to find those notes. But don't worry, I'm not going to preach a message or teach on illumination this evening, but per pastor's request, I'll make a few remarks before we get into our text this evening. I did do a study on this uh, the dates tell me that this was back in December of 2020, so a number of years back already. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah, hard to believe that. I think this was a men's prayer series that I did this on, or used this with. And I said this uh, in the very beginning of my notes, what is illumination? And uh, I might kind of reword it now that I look at it again. But I said at the time, it's the Spirit's enlightening work, that is the opening of the eyes of the mind and heart. You know, pretend if in your mind, you know, if your mind has eyes, your heart has eyes. It's the Spirit's work of opening those eyes of the mind and will about God's Word so that believer, the believer is able to understand and embrace the significance of God's Word understand and embrace the significance of God's word in their life. And so it's the Holy Spirit's work of opening the mind and the heart to God's word in that way. And it happens, uh, I said at this time, I wrote, and I still believe it to this day, that this work of illumination is a work of the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. And it is a one-time occurrence like, perhaps, you can think of other works that happened at that time. Regeneration, you know, what happens when you get saved? You're regenerated, you're justified, you're baptized by the Spirit, you're sealed by the Spirit, you're also illuminated by the Spirit. These are all instantaneous, simultaneous works of God at the moment of salvation. And so, illumination is one of those works uh, wrought by the Spirit, and I think it's an important uh, that we, we recognize this, that it happens at salvation, because as a believer, there could be times in our study of God's word where we feel like we're not understanding the text, it's difficult to understand, and we might easily excuse it as, well, I just I need to be illuminated. You know, I'm kind of, there's nothing I can do about this until God's spirit comes upon me and illuminates me, and I think we need to disabuse ourselves of that mindset um, we have been illuminated. We have that power, uh, that enablement, I should say, of the Spirit. And what, you may f- what may be feeling like a lack of God's illuminating work or the Spirit's illuminating work is actually uh, perhaps uh, a lack of diligence in God's Word, maybe one thing. It may be sin in your life that's causing you to, uh, to not be able to study God's Word. You know, you have that, that uh, troubled heart. And so maybe that's distracting you and uh, causing you not to embrace God's word because you're living in the flesh at that time, and that when you live in the flesh, it's hard to walk in the spirit. Uh, it could be laziness. It's not the lack of illumination, but maybe laziness. You're just not putting in the effort into studying God's word. And so 
We ought not to use the lack of illumination as an excuse for our misunderstanding of God's word or lack of understanding or chalking up to, you know, it's too hard to understand because, well, here's another, uh, I think, false idea that I talked about in this study is that uh, we also have to understand when the Spirit illuminates us that every believer has equal capability, equal illumination, if I can put it that way. What do I mean by that? Well, we might say, well, the pastor, Pastor Matt's more illuminated. You know, he's God's servant. And so, of course, it's more easy for him to understand. Or, you know, I don't have to worry about understanding because he'll do the, heart, you know, the labor of understanding it, teaching me. But we need to disabuse ourselves of that. Each believer is equally illuminated, equally and able to understand the significance of God's word. And so uh, don't allow yourself to say, well, it's just too hard. I'll let pastor do that work. No, you have equal enablement to understand God's word. And so it's not an excuse to not study just because you feel like it's too difficult. So that's a few thoughts on illumination. Uh, of course, there's much more to that topic. I'd love to talk to you more about that, or you can talk to pastor about it. I can share these notes uh, probably would try to improve on them as the years go by, but uh, just a few thoughts on that topic. But the remainder of our portion of our time this evening will not be on illumination, but on uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 and 2. We've now made our way to the final chapter of this letter to Timothy. I hope you have equally enjoyed this study. We've been in this book now for a number of months and uh, looked at it in great detail. We could, perhaps would be profitable at some point to, like Pastor did recently with Hosea, try to treat this in one message and understand what are the significant themes, you know, what's the overarching idea and purpose of the letter. But we've chosen a different direction this time through the book, and that is to study it in great detail. And as I said, we've made our way all the way to the last chapter. And this evening, we're just going to look at the first two verses of chapter 6. And let me read those to you, and then we'll look at them in more detail. Paul writes here to Timothy in verse 1, Let as many bondservants are, as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. I had a really enjoyable time yesterday. I sat down with my brother Drew in my office there in the back, and we just kind of poured over this text for a little bit. I shared with him some of the notes that I planned on sharing with you this evening, and, uh, and so I'll have to acknowledge the fact that some of the things that I share this evening are, are fruit of that little time of study yesterday, and I hope we can do more things like that. If you're interested in doing that with me or pastor, we'd love to do that, uh, bounce ideas off of you in regard to our preparation for teaching and preaching. Now, as we look at the text this evening, uh, I'd like for you to call to remembrance that Paul has addressed already two classes of people in the Ephesian church. 
Remember back in chapter 5, Paul addresses the treatment of widows, and that's the large majority of chapter 5, verses 3 to 16. And then he also talks about the treatment of elders, which we just finished studying, and that's in verses 17 to 25. And now he turns to a third class of people in the church, slaves. We see this in verses 1 and 2. And so it it may actually be easier for you to understand that connection to chapter 5 if you were, at least in your mind, to move the chapter marker, chapter 6, move it forward to verse 3 and make verse 3 the first verse of chapter 6 and make the first two verses kind of the end of chapter 5 because really they relate better to chapter 5 than they do with the rest of chapter 6. So, of course, we remind ourselves that these chapter uh, numbers are not inspired, not a part of the original text. Uh, they were the interpreters best, uh, in, or later on in the copying of Scripture, that was the scribes and those who thought you know, best of this is kind of where uh, section, good section breaks could be. And so uh, we have them there for our convenience and for easily finding verses, but they're not inspired. And so with that in mind, maybe it's easy for you to make that connection if you were to place verses 1 and 2 uh, as more a part of chapter 5. Now, Scripture does mention slavery, and while it does not explicitly endorse the practice of slavery, it, it does accept it as an institution. Remember, not endorsed, but accepted as an institution. While Paul does exhort masters to treat slaves fairly, and with kindness, uh, for instance, uh, let me just read Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. He says uh, there, And you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Paul has just finished actually addressing slaves and how they are to be obedient and uh, show goodwill toward their masters. And so Paul's saying, likewise, masters, treat them well, fairly, kindly. Don't threaten them, but be kind in your treatment of them. And so Paul does exhort masters on a number of occasions. We see also in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul addresses how masters are to treat their servants But Scripture also equally has much to say, if not more, about a slave's treatment of his or her master. For instance, just where we were in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, Paul addresses in some detail how they are to treat their master with obedience, being obedient to them. Of course, in our text this evening, we have this very topic being addressed and also in 1 Peter chapter 2, 18 and 19, Paul, uh, Peter writes concerning how slaves are to relate to their masters. And so maybe often we think about, uh, you know, even in the context of 19th century slavery, we think about the treatment of slaves. Paul really turns that on its table and says, no, let's think about how slaves are to treat their masters. And in our passage this evening, Paul commands slaves to treat their masters with honor, with honor. 
Just like the other two classes of people, which we already spoke about in chapter 5, the motivating factor for how a believer conducts himself or herself, whether it be a widow or an elder, the motivating factor for how they behave and conduct themselves themselves, is the reputation of God and his people, the church. Just uh, remember in chapter 3 even, as we go back to the qualifications of elders, remember what Paul says about elders. They are to have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And we could uh, deduce from that that also then the church would have a, have a, uh, a scar upon it and God as well if he were to fall into reproach. And then in chapter 5, verse 8, Remember uh, what he says about family members who don't provide for their own. They're, they're worse than an unbeliever. That's not the kind of reputation a, a believer should have. They should have a reputation of being like God. And then in verse 14 of chapter 5, in con- concerning uh, widows, he says, Therefore I des- desire that the younger widows marry, bearing children, manage, manage the house, Give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Reproachfully about what? Well, certainly the the woman's conduct, but also the church, which she's a part of, and God, who is head over the church, Christ. And so throughout all of Timothy, really, we see this idea that the conduct of the believer is important because God's reputation and his people is on the line. And so this evening, as we look at this text, we also have to understand this important fact. We, to understand Paul's instructions here in verses 1 and 2, we must have a grasp of the institution of slavery as seen in Scripture. Because this really does have an effect on how we understand verses 1 and 2, how it, what it meant to the, the church in Ephesus in that day and age, in that time as well as how it relates to us and applies to us today. Now, the word bondservant here can be translated as slave. In fact, if you have, uh, for instance, the NASB, the NASB translation version, uh, that has the word slave, not bondservant. And the word, uh, the most common terms for slaves in Hebrew and Greek refer to both slaves and servants, so bondservant or slave has a similar uh, idea. And in Scripture, the word slave or bondservant can be used to refer, refer to a variety of situations, which are not all equivalent to the kind of slavery that perhaps first comes to our mind, the, the harsh, inhumane slavery that we see in the 19th century in American history. Of course, there are similarities there, just like there were uh, harsh, inhumane, unregenerate, disbelieving masters in the 19th century. Well, the same existed in in the first century as well. And so, of course, there are similarities of treatment of slaves, but the form of slavery did not look exactly the same. In the ancient world, a slave could be owned, uh, in fact, by the state, such as the publicly owned slaves in Athens who served actually as kind of a police 
force, interesting idea, or they could be owned by individuals. Slavery could take the form of debt slavery. In that kind of scenario, a person would sell themselves into slavery or their children into slavery to clear their debts. This is kind of the similar idea of indentured servanthood, selling yourself to pay off our debt, or taking a loan, borrowing money, and to pay that back, they would sell themselves into slavery. But always for a specified period of time. It wasn't a permanent kind of slavery. It was temporary until that debt was paid. Of course, other uh, people were... uh, forced into slavery as a punishment for crime. Some were born into slavery. Children who were born uh, by slaves were then therefore owned by a master. There was also instances where the enslavement of victims of piracy or war uh, could take place as well. Now, as we look at into Scripture and how Scripture speaks about slavery and how it uh, regards it, we can see in the Old Testament a number of important truths. In the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament assumes that slavery is a part of hu- the human experience as a result of the fallenness of man and uh, also as a part of just how uh, the, the, uh, the world operates. And in the Old Testament, uh, there are a number of regulations which the law of Moses provided the Israelites in order to refrain them from, you know, the kind of mistreatment that would likely take place at the hands of those who are, uh, who are evil and unkind. In fact, concern is shown for the welfare of slaves in multiple places in the Old Testament, in Exodus 21, 20, there's regulations concerning slaves and how they are to be treated. We see this uh, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5 as well in verse 14. And for example, in Leviticus 25, verses 39 to 41, it states that an Israelite who sells himself into slavery due to poverty was to be released in the year of Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee, there's also in the Old Testament opportunity for relatives to redeem Israelite slaves that are owned by non-Israelites. We see this in Leviticus 25 as well. Furthermore, God condemned those who ignored the Jubilee rule and forced their fellow countrymen to become slaves again. And so God condemns that kind of action. They the ignoring of the law which was set up and continuing to keep them in enslavement. So the Old Testament has a number of things to say regarding this, but also in the New Testament, which perhaps more predominantly relates to our text this evening, uh, we find a number of truths and principles that regulate slavery. But let me first make this mention that uh, some say that slavery was so extensive in Roman times that in the early Christian era, so think first century uh, era, some believe that uh, one out of every two people were a slave. Now, that number may be a little high. I'm not quite sure that it was 50%. 
But let's say that it was even 30 or 40% of people were slaves. If that were the case, then if you were to put yourself into the first century, put yourself in the church in Ephesus, you, were likely, fall, you likely fell into one or two categories. You were either, uh, you were either a household, uh, a head of a household which consisted of slaves, or part of that household, or you were the slave in that household. This was how the Roman world operated at the time, the Greco-Roman world. Now, of course, chattel or property slavery is not a Christian institution. In fact, uh, I think we can take the principle from 1 Timothy 1.10 that you are not to, that which has to do with uh, uh, people who are kidnappers, and really, uh, that really what was ha- was happening in the 19th century. Uh, people were being kidnapped, taken, uh, part of the slave trade, and so uh, I think that's one one passage which we can clearly use to defend against uh, the the acceptance of chattel or property slavery. Of course, this is the, the idea of chattel slavery is an affront to the fact that people are created in the image of God. They're not property to be sold. They are to to be valued. Furthermore, property slavery or chattel slavery did not allow for slaves to purchase their freedom. It was more of a permanent kind of uh, uh, circumstance, which is then a direct disregard of the principles of slave liberation in the Old Testament, like uh, letting slaves free in the year of Jubilee. Of course, as I mentioned earlier, other forms of slavery, such as indentured servitude, uh, could perhaps be instituted in a way that was not inhumane, not harsh, but actually uh, a kind of, uh, of, of a mutual care and, uh, and help at times as well. Now, the New Testament attitude towards slavery indicates that the status of the slave was actually more like that of a servant. In such scenarios, then, a servant could own property at times in certain circumstances. They could even earn money and eventually buy their freedom. These household servants remained uh, the best kind of treated servants in this kind of slavery institution. Of course, as I said a moment ago earlier, the state of the human heart, we know, does not guarantee that even in these situations, slaves were always treated properly all the time. And so we recognize that and we accept that even in relationship to our text this evening, that that was often or perhaps the case in many of these situations. Paul deals with slavery in several of his letters, and one of the most important comments that he makes about slavery is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I just invite you to turn there uh, for a moment before we get to our text in 1 Timothy 6. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In verse 20, he says, Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? 
do not be concerned about it. Notice that Paul's primary thought here is not to concern yourself with the state. But, he says, if you can be made free, rather use it. Use that opportunity and free yourself. Verse 22, for he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You are are bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. In other words, if you are called as a slave, don't concern yourself primarily with freeing yourself. Just serve the Lord. Recognize the Lord as your master in that state, in that earthly state. If you are called as a free man, then, well, don't, uh, if you, at all possible, don't you know, put yourself in a position of slavery, but rather serve God as a, as a free person. Paul here is teaching that if a slave becomes a Christian while still in slavery, his primary concern is not changing his status. But, again, if he's presented with an opportunity to free himself, he should take it. So Paul's concern is is not that they change their status, but recognize their identity in Christ in whatever present state they are in. And so when Paul addresses slaves then here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul has something other than personal freedom in mind. What is at stake is far more important than being liberated from their state of slavery. God's name and the Christian faith, the gospel, is what is most important. It is that which is at stake. And so, irrespective of their circumstances, Paul's command here in verses 1 and 2 is this, that the desire for God's name be glorified. And irrespective of their circumstances, the desire for God's name be glorified ought to determine how they behave themselves toward their masters, regardless of what state they are in. That is to be the primary thought in their mind, preeminent over any other uh, factor, like liberating themselves from the situation. And here in verse 1, Paul writes then to these slaves, those who are in this position, like we just spoke about, commanding them not to concern themselves with freeing them from, them, from themselves from this state, but living in such a way that God's name be glorified, not blasphemed. Paul is speaking here in verse 1 to all those in the church who are in some form of a slave-master relationship. Some in, uh, some in a relationship that was much easier to deal with, others in a situation that perhaps was much harder to deal with. And given the earlier statistics we mentioned, this could be up to half of the members of the church. We could also deduce that then up to half of the church members were perhaps masters, owned one or more slaves. In fact, there were probably slaves who attended church with their believing masters. 
However, not all slaves had Christian masters, of course. Perhaps the large majority of them did not. And here in verse 1, I think Paul probably is not distinguishing between saved and unsaved masters when he commands slaves to count their own masters worthy of all honor. More likely, Paul is addressing masters in general in verse 1, whether believing or unbelieving. And then in verse 2, he's, he's going from a general kind of command and situation to a more specific one, one that has to do with a slave who is owned or serving a believing master. So he's going from general to specific. Paul calls these bond servants in verse 1, those who are under the yoke. And slavery of any form is just that. It is a yoke, a burden that is carried, especially, especially if the master is not a Christian. Not only is the labor hard, but also the relationship is hard as well. Mistreatment by unfair and unkind masters was not, though, an, an acceptable reason to not honor their master. The idea of honor here has been used repeatedly in this section, remember back in chapter 5, in regard to the treatment of various people, how the church was to treat widows, they were to honor them, how the church was to treat elders. The word honor means to have an attitude of respect towards someone. And in some cases, like that of widows, this respect was to be demonstrated through financial help. Obeying, of course, this command to honor a master would be made easier for some or harder for others, depending on the kind of master you had. But, as we said, Paul leaves no room for excuse to withhold honor. Perhaps there was the slave sitting there in the church in Ephesus who did work and serve a believing master, and it may have been easier for him to say, yes, I, I love my master even. I have an affection toward him because he's a brother in Christ, and he makes it easier for me to carry this burden. While the slave sitting next to him or across the row was thinking, this is hard. It's not easy. I'm mistreated. Perhaps I'm even ridiculed for my faith. A slave must recognize that he is under the authority and leadership of his master, and therefore it is his duty to respect him. Along the same vein, Paul commands us to obey the government, to submit to them as our authority, to pay taxes, and to give respect and honor to whom they are due. In a sense, the government is a, a, a kind of master over the people. Perhaps not so much in our culture, but in many cultures that is true, many governments. But in one sense, or in, in some sense, it is true today. We are called to obey the government as a kind of master over us, an authority figure, collectively speaking, and we are to give them honor. 
because, as we know from Scripture, ultimately, authority originates from who? From God. Now, Paul gives the reason, though, why honoring slave, or excuse me, masters is so critical. Look with me at the end of verse 1. Paul says, count their own masters worthy of all honor. And here's the reason why, the, the, the reason statement, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. The reason then that slaves were to honor and respect their masters, regardless of how easy or hard it was, is because God's name and the Christian faith were at stake the reputation of these things. Paul is deeply concerned, deeply concerned for God's reputation and the reputation of the Christian teaching, which largely depends upon the behavior of those who claim the name of God and his teaching. That applied then in this situation, but that applies today. God's name and the gospel of Christ Jesus, the reputation of those two two things largely depends on how you and I behave. Because we make a claim to follow Christ, to follow God, and to follow the gospel. Like the Israelites' conduct, which caused the Gentiles to blaspheme the name of God in Isaiah 52.5. So Christians can cause the world to blaspheme God in the gospel by their dishonorable conduct toward, toward those whom they work and serve. To fail then to show honor toward their master, the Christian slave, the slave here in Ephesus, was risking dragging God's name and the gospel through the mud. Now, I want to draw some application from this verse for us today because most of us are not in this kind of identical relationship of slave and master. There is slavery that exists today. We can't be ignorant of that. But largely, uh, we've rid ourselves of that in our culture But we do have authority figures over us, do we not? We mentioned already the government in one sense, but also each of us, most of us, unless you're super young or retired, have a job or had a job in which you were uh, subservient to your boss, to your employer. I had a conversation with a brother, one of our brothers earlier this week, about this very idea. We were talking about this as it relates to uh, our, our, our uh, working for someone. We talked about a scenario where, you know, perhaps you go into, a, uh, into an interview. It's, it's not necessarily needful that you tell them right off that you're a Christian. You can do that if it's appropriate. Perhaps it is appropriate so that you can tell them, you know, I need, I need Sundays off. I need other times of the week off so I can attend to what I think what is important to me and my in my faith. So maybe it's important that you do that, but perhaps you don't, and that's okay. But there will most likely come a time in which an opportunity arises for you to share your faith, 
you know, the water cooler conversation with other coworkers, or perhaps a more relaxed conversation with your manager in his office. Picture yourself in that situation. Maybe it's easy because you've been there. I wonder this. How would you answer this, given your experience or possible experience in the future? If you, in that moment, were to share your faith and your allegiance to Christ, how would your boss or your coworker respond? Perhaps they would respond in this way. Oh, yeah, maybe not verbally, but in their mind. That makes sense. That really makes sense. I've noticed how he conducts himself, how he treats others, how he respects our, you know, the, the boss, you know, isn't talking about him behind the back. That makes sense. I hope that is the situation you have found yourself in. But there is another kind of more negative scenario. The kind of scenario where you share your faith and you're excited about it, And they leave scratching their heads saying, I never would have thought that. Huh, that's interesting. Doesn't really make sense. I've seen how he talks about our boss, about the other co-workers. And that is kind of the situation that Paul is talking about here in verse 1. The kind of situation in which the slave honors the master so that when the world looks in or the unbelieving master observes his character and finds out at one, you know, at one time or another, that this slave of mine is a believer, there's no reason to blaspheme God's name. He simply says, well, that kind of makes sense. I could see why now he acts as he does toward me, why he honors me as he does. I pray that all of us in our situation that God has put us in, whoever servant we are, We are giving no reason for God's name to be dragged through the mud. Paul goes on, though, in verse 2. We'll just address this very briefly in our remainder of our time to talk about a more specific scenario here. He's going from a general kind of description of masters, whether it be believing or unbelieving, to specifically a slave who is a servant of a believing master. And he says this in verse 2, And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them all the more, we could say, because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. Here in verse 2, Paul gives specific instructions to believing slaves who are servants of believing masters. And the command here to not despise means not to look down upon their master, not to disrespect, dishonor them. Now, there are a number of reasons why a believing slave could look down upon his believing master. Perhaps his master is not treating him fairly, kindly, like the word of God teaches him to do making it difficult for him to honor him and making it easy for him to despise him. Perhaps, and I think this is perhaps the, the more primary reason that Paul is thinking about here when he says this, 
the primary reason. Perhaps the, slong, the, excuse me, perhaps the slave wrongly interprets his spiritual status as an equal, as he is, to his, his fellow brother in Christ. He looks at the situation and says, well, I know the Christian doctrine teaches that I, spiritually I'm equal with this brother. I'm a spiritual equal to him. And because of this, I believe, this slave is thinking, I, there's reason to not treat the master as being over authority over him. You know, who is he now? Well, he's, he's not my master because Christian doctrine teaches me I have one master. I have one Lord. And who is this master to think that he can have authority over me? Perhaps that was the incorrect thinking, an incorrect uh, application of the doctrine of being equal in the church, equally valued by God and God's people. For instance, the logic could go like this. We're both believers, and in the church, we know from Galatians chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. So why then should I be treated as inferior to my master if I am of equal standing in the church? However, this kind of logic forgets that although they are equally valued by God and in the church, there remains outside of the context of this a servant-master relationship in the context of the work that he is doing. This is possibly one of the problems that Paul is addressing here, this fallacy, this incorrect application of this doctrine. On the other hand, perhaps some used their equal spiritual standing as an excuse to just simply slack off or to not take their work seriously. As my brother Drew and I were talking about this, he gave you know, kind of a wonderful uh, illustration of if you've ever worked for a believer before or had co-workers who are believers, there could be the temptation to kind of slack off. Well, you know, my, my boss, who's a believer, you know, we're kind of, we're chums, we're friends. He's not going to care if I, you know, if I take longer on this project or if, uh, you know, if I don't get it done by the end of the day, he'll, you know, he'll give me the grace. You know, that's what he should do because he's a believer, And so you could have this mentality of it's not that important because, well, you know, we're we're friends. He'll understand. But that, of course, is also an incorrect understanding of the relationship that exists there. The fact that a master is a believer should not be reason to disrespect or ignore their authority or despise it. Quite the contrary, Paul says. Rather, they should serve them all the more because they're benefiting, they're profiting a believer. In this situation, perhaps you find yourself in with a believing employer. You have all the more reason to serve because the beneficiaries are are brothers in Christ, Would you not want to profit that kind of a person? That is an excuse to not try to profit, you know, the unbelieving master. But isn't it all the more reason to want to profit them? 
because you know if they're a sound believer, they're not in this for just the riches. They're not in it for the greed. They're likely use those riches to profit God's people, the church, to further the work of Christ, to uh, bless the coworkers, to care for them and meet their financial needs. All the kinds of things that hopefully a believing employer would want to do and is doing. And so Paul, in this context, encourages, he commands, he exhorts that believing slaves profit and work harder for their masters who are believing as well because you are benefiting them. Not only should it drive you to labor diligently because you want to benefit them, it, it, should, it should give you more reason to honor them and respect them because you have that kind of affection and love toward them. Finally, Paul says this at the end of verse 2. He says, teach and exhort these things. This comment is probably made specifically to Timothy. Teach these things. Exhort them. Paul often uses this command. We already have talked about it here in 1 Timothy in other instances. Paul's concern is that these things not be forgotten. They be continually taught, continually exhort slaves and all of God's people in the church to obey these commands. It's easy to forget them. It's easy to ignore them. It's not easy to teach them. Perhaps it's much easier for myself, or if you are up here, to teach it in this context, because there's not kind of that immediate or uh, uh, very short bridge. It's a much wider gap. You know, we're talking about slaves and masters, and here we're talking about employee and employers. But imagine Timothy speaking directly about this subject matter teaching slaves to honor their master. I think one application of this is that not all of Scripture is easy to hear and even much harder to do. It's uncomfortable. It's at times awkward, but it's not to be ignored. It's to be followed. And that is Paul's exhortation to those in the church in Ephesus, and it is our exhortation today to obey as well. Let's close in a word of prayer this evening. Heavenly Father, as we close now this evening, Lord, may we consider the kind of relationships that we have that are as most relatable as we can think of in regard to a slave and master relationship. For most of us, that's probably a relationship we have with a boss, an employer, or with our government. Though perhaps in a more broader sense, it's an application between a child to his father or mother. Lord, help us to obey these commands. Lord, help us not to shirk them, but to embrace them. Lord, seeing 
how critical it is that your name not be blasphemed. Rather, we give every opportunity to exalt and glorify the name of God through our diligent labor, through our treatment of our boss, our employer, our parents, our government, giving every opportunity to share Christ, not defame Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.